You would not believe the amount of Cheez-Its I ate yesterday. <laughs> Is that where that idea came from? Yeah, so Liz and I were... I love it. We were talking about the most ideal brands to work with when we decide to do any ads, if we ever decide to do that. I'm like, what would be like the most ideal brands? And I'm eating these. Oh my God, they're so addictive. The extra toasty Cheez-Its. Yes. They have to be the extra toasty ones. Oh yeah. The regular ones don't even bother. Get the extra toasty ones or don't (laughs) because yeah, it's a slippery slope once you start eating them. And I know, you know, it's just like social media. It's very insidious. There are food chemists. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who design food to be addictive so that you will keep eating it. And they must have the best people on the job over at Cheez-Its because <laughs> those things, I cannot stop eating them. They're so good. Welcome to the Viola Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists exploring the art of connection through conversations with each other and our friends. I'm Stephanie Knutson. And I'm Liz O'Hara Starr. And we're both professional freelance musicians living in the DC metro area. That is a classic example. And I have countless ones in my own life. My body doesn't even want let alone need extra toasty cheeses, but my mind really, really wants them. Mm-hmm. I had really made a conscious effort for a long time before the pandemic to be mindful of what I was eating, to have discipline about it in a good way, and exercise. I don't know that I valued sleep. I think I still struggled with that. Mm. But now, and I'm, I'm sure this is the case for most people, like it's just harder during this time to do any of those things. So yeah, now that I've said it on the podcast, I'm kind of recommitting to all of that. I want to take care of my body. <laughs> you know, I, I think about it as musicians, the better in shape we are for our bodies, the easier it is to play, easier it is to move around. And I also, in terms of life, this body we live in, it's what makes it possible for us to experience everything we do. Mm. So I'm starting with sleep. I'm going to start there. That's a really important first step, I think. How do you do with sleep? What's your sleep deal, Stephanie? I normally try and get like seven to eight hours a night because I don't function as well without proper sleep. Yeah. Last night was kind of an anomaly. I know you were up late. (laughs) But yeah, some nights I'm in bed by 10. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, I have kids too, so I don't have the luxury of sleeping in. They have to be up at a certain time for school and they're not at an age yet where they can you know, manage themselves responsibly. So (laughs) they just let them fend for themselves. Right. The free range (laughs) children. I'm a little envious of the, this is happening. So you have to get up this morning Mm -hmm. because not having that, I think that's one of my biggest problems with the pandemic because in real time, for those of you who haven't seen my personal stuff, I absolutely love and adore bar three. It's a chain of exercise studios in the country and my DC studio, there's a location that's 10 minutes from my house they had classes at 9 30 a.m every day of the week which was perfect because i could get myself up at like eight or so which was a very reasonable time of the day and i would get myself ready and i'd go over and work out that was how i started my day and when the pandemic hit they had to close the studios obviously and there are zoom classes and there are pre-recorded classes and we also get a couple of outdoor options now that the weather's getting nicer but it is so hard to be motivated some mornings to get up when you don't have to, you know, and yet I know that I would be a zillion times more productive if my day started 
two hours earlier and ended two hours earlier than it normally does, you know? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, this goes to Gretchen Rubin's work in Happier, and she talks about the four personality types in relation to how you relate to expectations. Mm. And that feels very on point for what we've both discovered that you are, which is an obliger. (laughs) Yeah, which means that you respond better to external expectations. So an accountability friend. 100%. Someone who you have to be with at a certain time, because if you aren't, they're going to be disappointed. Something that you pay money for, you know, that happens at nine o'clock every day. So, you know, you have to figure out how to push your own buttons. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's right. I didn't even think about that. I know I'm externally motivated in that way. And yeah, that's, it's so true. What an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, that's like how to hack your own psyche, you know? Yeah. How to get yourself in line. There are just so few ways to hold yourself accountable right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're externally motivated like that, and it's true. I mean, that was what got me up and going was knowing that that class was there and that I knew all the instructors and the women that I took the class with. And it was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, there was an expectation. Oh my gosh, that's huge. And you are... I'm an upholder. So an upholder is someone who can do well with internal expectations, as well as so goals that I set for myself, I tend to follow through with. But I also have obliger tendencies in that for some things, I do much better if I have outside accountability. Mm -hmm. So I am so excited about the hashtag viola love. Isn't it great? It's so much fun, you guys. I hope our listeners consider joining us on this. It's really cool to see it the way that Stephanie put it together. She did a beautiful job with the video footage. We are referring to the Viola Madness Day Instagram takeover for Potter Violins that happened on March 23rd and is about to happen for us. We're recording this the day before and we're super excited. Stephanie did a beautiful job with the content. We recorded all these videos and she just put them together. If you did not see this live, go check out Potter's because all of the feed will still be there. Yeah. So the name of the project was hashtag viola love yes and what we did was we asked people our friends people from around the world to tell us in five words or less what viola brings out in them and people sent us a very short little clip of them talking straight to the camera saying whatever they came up with for that and we've pieced them together in uh, real type videos on our instagram And we'll do a series because we have so many beautiful little videos. So if you feel inspired to send us a video, and we hope that you will, we'd love to see your face and to hear what you have to say about hashtag Viola Love. Yes. Send us a video to violacentric at gmail.com. And really, I mean, the videos are four or five seconds long. If you use five words, you can use less than five words. And I think sometimes when someone puts a call out for something like this, there's this pressure to like come up with some brilliant response. But I don't think it's about that. I think what we what we're hoping is for it to feel like we're all just kind of sharing in what we love about this instrument. Yeah. And as long as you are speaking your truth, that's really what we're about. We're not looking for something funny, or something clever. We just want your authentic response. So look inside yourself and ask yourself, what does viola bring out in you that you don't experience when doing other activities? 
And whatever your truth is, it's going to be beautiful. And I can't wait to hear it. Totally. I love that. So hopefully we get flooded with videos now. Yes. We need a name for our listeners. I know. Like I listen to My Favorite Murder, which is a true crime podcast. It's very popular. And people who listen to this are called Murderinos. It's super cute. So if you have any ideas on that too, we'd love for our listeners to, you know, coin their own. Also, it's been really cool to start hearing from listeners. I mean, we've had a few friends and colleagues here and there mentioned to us in the past about the podcast and that they really like what's going on. But now we're starting to get brave listeners who don't actually know us personally reaching out. And it is so wonderful that we are contemplating doing kind of a mailbag. So if you have thoughts, if you have ideas, if you have questions for us, shoot us a message Mm -hmm. because we may include it in that episode. Yeah. So this episode we talk with our friend Tiffany Richardson. She's the co-founder of an organization called Sound Impact uh, based here in D.C. that is invested in community engagement and outreach, particularly youth. But she's got other projects going on that you're going to hear about. And she's also a violist yeah, and a freelancer like us. She's got incredible perspectives on our business and us as individuals in that business. And it was really great. Right, Steph? Yeah, I personally felt very inspired after having our conversation with Tiffany and all of our guests are inspiring. But I think that speaking with someone who came from exactly where we are and has come to these realizations and perspectives, I kind of felt it in my soul Mm. because I could relate to her so strongly. And I think that you are all going to love her. She's just such a light and She's just so thoughtful. Yes. I think you're going to love this episode. So enjoy. I can't wait to dig into this stuff with you today. (laughs) I'm so excited. (laughs) Okay. So we're here with Tiffany Richardson, who is our friend and fellow violist. Tiffany is the co-founder of Sound Impact, which is an organization that is doing some really incredible things in terms of outreach for youth. And I've watched some of your videos and they're just so, oh my gosh, they're so much fun. I absolutely adore them. But we also have gigged together on and off throughout the years and I know you and Stephanie know each other too from the gig world. I just remember it was on a Richmond Symphony job and they were doing these great casual hour concerts on Fridays. And then they would give out drink tickets to all the musicians because they were encouraging them to go interact with the patrons afterwards at a bar. And you and I sat and we had the greatest conversation and... We've had a couple of those like power convos over the years, which has been so much fun. So that's so good to have you here. It's so great to be here with you both. Thank you. What's the origin story of you guys knowing each other? Do you know? I think that it was National Philharmonic that we played together first. Is that right? You know what? I actually remember meeting you as soon as I moved back to the area, which was, I think, 2007. And I want to say that we did some really obscure gig at a church in sort of the middle of nowhere, Virginia. Okay. And I remember meeting you and you were talking about being a personal trainer. Oh. And I was like, oh, this girl's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) And 
and I was like, oh, she's like doing other things also. That's awesome. And yeah, but that, I mean, that was a long time ago. The gigs that we take when we're like new to the area, right? Yes. One of the things that I was told when I was new to the area was you take every gig, Mm -hmm. no matter what it is, because that's how you build your reputation. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember the same thing. Say yes to everything. Yeah. My first May here, going back and forth from like the Kennedy Center to the cathedral. One weekend, I don't even remember how many services it was. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I can do it. I can like change my clothes in the car and I can like eat while I'm driving mm-hmm. and it's going to work out. And like, there's not going to be any traffic. <laughs> yes. That's what you do. <laughs> it's the hustle. Yeah. It's good advice, right? You're saying yes to everything because you have no idea what sort of next opportunity will present itself by the job that you've said yes to it's really great to expose yourself to as many relationships as you possibly can it's just that in our world it is that kind of thing it's like oh yeah I now have a blank space in my calendar and this person emailed me and I'm going to fill that blank space because I can yeah and it also makes it a hard habit to break don't you think yes yeah and it's really easy to overschedule yourself and I think we've all been in that place before too Like, you don't want to say no. I don't think I've left that place yet. (laughs) I know, right? I feel like I'm still there. Yeah, it's a constant reminder to, oh, I I don't have to be in that state anymore. Right. And even if you get out of it for a few months, it's easy to fall back into that trap. And I'm sure that coming out of the pandemic, there's going to be a huge flood of not wanting to say no to anything. Yeah. And I think that could be potentially dangerous for our field again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just had a conversation about this with some friends last night. I don't even know if I'm conscious of how much I do it. It's not until I start to feel on the verge of burnout that I'm like, oh my God, I've done it again. You know, I've I've now like overbooked my time. I can tell a little bit about sort of my story. When I found music as a young person, you know, my friend had a violin under her bed and I was like, let me play it. And they were like, no, 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 you guys are too young to have that out during playtime. And so I just started begging for the violin and I was fortunate enough to, my family got a piano, so I got to start taking piano lessons and then started violin in fourth grade, Fairfax County Public Schools. Yay! Yeah. And I tried the viola during the summer. They were like, ah, do you want to try this? I was like, yeah, sure. You know, and then I was like, oh my gosh, the C string. I just kept doing both and I really enjoyed it. And then I had auditioned for youth orchestra with what's now AYP. And I got in on the violin, but when I got to the first rehearsal, there were no violas. <laughs> and so they were like, who wants to move? And I was like, me. And I moved over and I like never went back. I love it. You know, I played a, tiny, a little bit of violin and still teach a little bit of violin. But that was, you know, my official transition to violist. And I really felt like that was where I belonged, I think, you know. And, and I, I kept playing piano for a few more years, but... Viola was like my voice and I got to start playing in string quartets and being with other people and it was all about being with other people and Mm -hmm. I was you know looking forward to youth orchestra every Monday like those are the people that I'm still friends with today and still get to play with today and that's like I think one of the most amazing things about being in music. So I went to music school but I was really interested in being in an orchestra and I was like taking auditions and I was on that path and I actually got injured. I fell down the stairs and I hurt my shoulder and it was right before I moved back to the DC area and started freelancing. So as I moved back to the DC area, I was also like kind of hiding the fact that I was dealing with a pretty bad injury 
So I was working my way through that and I was navigating a freelance career and I was loving doing the variety of different things. And so I kind of slowed down on the auditions, partially because I was working a lot, but also I was like still recovering from this. I joined a trio and we did a lot of education work and I loved doing those kind of concerts. And then I became a part of another like conductorless orchestra that me and Danielle and a few friends, Sean Neidlinger and Jory Herman, who's now in LA Phil, we all started that and did that for a couple years. And I loved being a part of these things that we were growing ourselves and, you know, like having artistic input into and, you know, just the whole entrepreneurial thing. So I just kind of ended up accidentally steering away, I think, from the orchestral path. And each time a new opportunity came, I, I saw that I was choosing. Not, I was still choosing to do orchestral gigs and freelancing and of course opera too. And, and I love doing that, but I wasn't wanting to take the auditions. I was wanting to dedicate myself to doing this like community engagement education work mm. way more than having a full-time orchestra job. And so as I was going through this, we ended up creating Sound Impact, which was in 2013. We formed Sound Impact because we were doing a concert for the third time at this point, telling the story of a Holocaust survivor. Mm. He was the mentor of uh, my co-founder for Sound Impact, Rebecca Jackson, who lives on the West Coast. And um, he was associate concertmaster of the Philadelphia Orchestra. And he was the sole survivor of his family from the Holocaust. Oh my goodness. And the violin saved his life multiple different times. His story was incredible. He was an incredible man. I had the pleasure of knowing him and the honor of knowing him for um, several years before he passed away. And getting to tell his story, getting to perform that music, and getting to bring together people in a room to talk about what happened and Holocaust survivors that were in the same camps as children that may or may not have known each other came together. That experience just like, you know, changed it all for me and for my two co-founders. So Rebecca from California and Danielle Cho, who I know you both know well too, cellist in the DC area, the three of us decided that we wanted to keep doing more projects like this concert. And so we formed Sound Impact and I was really pushing at the beginning, let's do this the right way from the start, you know, let's form a nonprofit. And so we did and out of that grew other education work. During our first year, we had a residency in North Carolina, an education residency, and we went to Costa Rica and did our first international tour. And that started work that we've been doing every year since. And actually we have a virtual festival with the Costa Rican students and yeah, actually other international students will be joining as well in the last week of March. So it's exciting to be able to continue that work during this time. But once we started Sound Impact and I started getting more and more ingrained into education and community engagement as a focus, I came up again at another decision point. How do I continue to do this? What do I need to let go of? Like we're talking about how to say no, what to say yes to. And I worked with a coach and I really looked at like, what are my highest values and what's important to me as a musician? What contribution do I want to make? And I remember even dating back to college, I was like, oh, I don't want to just be on stage. We need interaction. This is more than just entertainment for me. That's kind of how I've always felt. And so this really just provided a springboard for all of us, I think. And then to create a community of you know musicians who really want to do this work too, and that share those same values and share that really deep commitment to the communities that we work in and the love for taking music, I think, beyond the concert hall. 
and and seeing how it can play a role in society in so many different ways, not just in education, but really in standing up for those that can't stand stand up for themselves or creating opportunities for young people to use their voice. So it's really changed my path and it's really just helped me refocus that, you know, whatever I need to be doing to be me really needs to be in that realm. And that goes for, you know, administrative work that I do outside too. Like I now work with National Philharmonic um, as director of community engagement as well as a part-time position. And that too, it's like, how do we translate what this, you know, great organization's doing in the concert hall into these other communities? Yes. Right now we've been focusing on the senior community, at least I have been. And that's so important because they've been so isolated this past year. Yes coming up with creative ways to engage them with our musicians and with creative projects is really exciting because we're all learners, mm-hmm. three-year-olds and you know, 83-year-olds. Yes. <laughs> we all want to engage and interact in these sort of more active ways, not necessarily all passive. So that's a lot of fun too. It's so great. And you mentioned that you worked with a coach and I did something similar and it was sort of at a crossroads in my own life for various reasons. But one was the expectations I was having about what I was supposed to be doing as an orchestral musician and that winning an audition was this, um, it was a goal that had to be accomplished. Otherwise your career isn't valid. And I would set myself up with these ridiculous expectations for what an audition was going to do or how I was going to do in an audition. And then, of course, inevitably, I'd set myself up and it wouldn't go well. And I kind of had a moment where I was like, what am I doing? So I also did some work where I kind of tried to define a little bit more my values. That's a big one is understanding your core values. And then we went further. We wrote up some guiding principles to go with those values that it's just sort of a, yeah, it's like a mission statement for your own life in detail. And that was so helpful to define where I was going. This idea that we all have our own kind of unique voices and we can explore things that bring that out in us and feel very fulfilled. That is, I mean, it's so great. And I think it's important to mention that some of us work with coaches because maybe you wouldn't necessarily think as a freelance musician, what would be the point of doing something like that? But actually, I think we have a challenge in identifying the things that really make us tick because we love music and that that's sort of the driver for a long time but it can't be the only driver if that makes sense definitely yeah I don't think you can expect for playing an orchestra job or any one facet of your life to fulfill you completely happiness is something that you have to work on throughout your life it's figuring out what makes you happy and I often think don't get me wrong I would have loved to win a job and be in an orchestra full time. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I think that I dodged a bullet by not doing that Mm -hmm. because so many different opportunities are available to me personally, not being tied down to an orchestra or a schedule. I wish that I had known, although I don't know if I would have listened. You know, (laughs) it's kind of something that you have to figure out on your own. But I'm not saying that orchestral musicians aren't fulfilled. I'm sure there are plenty who are very fulfilled. Yes. And, you know, they found ways to keep themselves happy. But I've just been reflecting a lot lately on the sliding doors concept of, you know, my life. 
I love that movie. Do you do have we all seen that movie? Yes. It's so yeah. <laughs> for all you millennials, it's a Gwyneth Paltrow movie. Yes. You need to go watch it because it's referenced a lot. <laughs> no, I think that's so beautiful, the sliding doors. Yes. Because I think that one thing that the pandemic has shown everyone too is that what we all thought our lives were and our careers were is so many, you know, on so many different levels, that can all go very differently. I think it's good to recognize and really important for so many years, I think in the music world, we haven't recognized that everyone is fully dimensional or multidimensional yes. and we're humans first, right? It's, I think we quite often put our instruments before our, and our love for our instruments and our striving to be the best <laughs> um, before taking care of ourselves and taking care of the people around us and, or thinking about what we're trying to do with our music making. Yes. And I think that this has been a good reminder that you can take all of the different pieces and and, and you're going to be a better musician if you're showing up as your full self. You know, we don't need an orchestra full of everyone the same. You both have mentioned earlier the unique voices and the unique things that everyone's bringing. Mm -hmm. And that goes for playing in an orchestra, but that also goes for being a part of a team. And I think if we could approach that sort of mindset that we do, people always talk about, you know, can orchestras be like chamber orchestras or chamber, you know, groups? But I think it's even larger than that. I think as a field, if we're thinking about how are we all contributing and where do we fit and how can we complement each other rather than all trying to follow, you know, the same sort of path or prescribed, like if you're not doing this way, it's not right. There's so much room for the diversity of experiences and talents and stories and experimentation. You know, I think this goes through classical music, but then even beyond and sort of redefining what classical music is in our society. Yes. The question, of course, is like, how do you make a Mahler symphony experiential and relevant for a bigger audience? And make people excited to like go and see it because it is magnificent. It's magnificent stuff and you can experience it in very poignant ways. It's just how do we make it accessible? It's the age old question. And I think Tiffany, you've been kind of on the inside of this. It has been really wonderful to see what Nat Phil, uh, the National Philharmonic here at Strathmore in the DC area, what they've been doing this year has been wonderful. Very few organizations are, have been pivoting in this way. We all play pretty regularly with the orchestra in normal times, but I, even though I haven't had a chance to play any of the shows this year, I have truly enjoyed sitting in on the live viewings and live stream chatting. The vibe there is so great. That's the thing that's like, how do we carry that over? How do we make it happen when we come back and we have audiences in person? Do you guys talk about that at all? All the time. You know, we had these conversations before the pandemic and I keep going back through like old notes and like cleaning stuff out and finding, oh yeah, oh my God, we talked about this five years ago. Oh my gosh. Maybe not at Nat Phil, but somewhere else. And that's an incredible reminder Yes, to see like, oh, this already went around and we haven't fixed this problem yet. You know, so that's, that's a good reminder. Yeah, It's been so amazing to see what's happened when we had to adapt. Not talking about just National Philharmonic, I'm talking about any arts organization or even beyond that has been able to do things this year. And it's been really exciting because with National Philharmonic and with Sound Impact, we've gotten to create things that we never, you know, would have done during this time. Yes. I'm very grateful that during such a difficult time, I've been able to be creative because, you know, normally our creativity would come with our instruments, but 
I've only played with other people in person over a three day period last July so far, except when I made my husband learn the ukulele <laughs> to play with me. <laughs> That's so fun. Are you playing viola ukulele duets, I hope? We did one. <laughs> cute. He's a great sport. (laughs) You know, I think that that's been so important and it's been so beautiful, like just being a part of some of the Netflix conversations, but then to to see how they've brought together these gorgeous concerts to bring in the visual, to incorporate. Yes. You know, we've incorporate wine pairings and incorporate chefs and incorporate art. And Laura Colgate's done such a beautiful job of curating the chamber music series and talking about bringing in these community tie-ins to these businesses and highlighting these these important things that you know are, are part of our community and peter too the repertoire that they're choosing this year and then the way that the team has just brought together all the different elements and really expanded it as the year has gone like if you watch you know the first concerts how it's evolved through the season and it'll continue to evolve there's still more concerts that are coming yeah. so it's just really exciting to see what's actually possible when you have to do it that way. Right. Mm-hmm. And with Sound Impact 2, you know, we ended up creating a whole new digital education series, Time Travel Goes Digital, and an education curriculum that people are using in their schools and some parents are using it at home. And it's just amazing to see, you know, we never would have created an online series, I think. You know, we would have kept doing everything in person. Right now, we're zooming into classrooms all across the country. It's just incredible to see how we've been able to push through other barriers. Like I said earlier, we're having a festival in Costa Rica. We did one in Panama a couple weeks ago and we've been able to maintain and actually really boost our connections with people in so many different places Mm -hmm. and had the time to sit down and really talk about what do these communities need. So what's gonna happen when we go back? So what do we keep from what we've learned? I love what you said, Liz, about Mahler 5. Someone posted on Facebook the other day, if you could play one last orchestra concert, what would you play? And that was like the piece that came to me. I was like, oh, Mahler 5, for sure. But I think not only how do we create the access points for the audience and give them a more experiential feel, but what you were saying really brought up to me how do we activate everyone in the orchestra? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much for saying that. And we have been talking about that at NatPhil. Yeah. So that's exciting. The orchestra of the future, what does that look like? And Gen Z, you know, they're going to push us. Oh into... my, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Their standards and their expectations are different in a really good way. We cannot stay where we are as a field yeah. for so many reasons. And I think a lot of that is activating the musicians, the artists, the people right it's the people yes how are we gonna help everyone see that their individual contributions are just as important as the whole and how are we as a field gonna look at what does that mean because that's a really big shift to do on a big level that's not typically how like a symphony orchestra thinks you know philosophically and in their planning but how incredible is it going to be when we can actually activate this entire team of incredible humans and musicians? I love that. Yeah, Liz and I have talked a lot about this in previous conversations about individuality versus being just a number in an orchestra. And the way that we're trained is to blend and to not stick out and to be a contributor, but not really an individual. And I love this concept of, like you said, activating the individual and making people realize that they have something unique to contribute. And then I think that, yeah, you're right. 
orchestral musicians would feel a lot more fulfilled by having those contributions be seen. Then they might be seeing themselves as something more than just a violist. They're like an individual who happens to be contributing to this greater idea. No one will see this, but you just made me smile so big. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, that's so beautiful. And it's, to it's totally possible. We really experimented with this with Sound Impact when we were creating Time Travel Goes Digital because we created a 10 episode series. Each episode had a different creative director or a team. For instance, Gino, we all know Gino. He's assistant concert master of Natville. I loved his episode. Oh my God, that was so amazing. <laughs> They're just so well done and so much fun. And I just watch them and I think, I cannot wait until my nephew's just a little older because I'm going to show him all of it. And he's going to love it. Yay! You guys are doing such a great job, really. Everyone, you just got to see their personality. Yes. You got to see their story. You got to see, you know, some of them to really talked about where their families are from and their their cultural heritage and shared really everyone got to decide what the what they were telling. That was so beautiful because we don't often get that opportunity mm -hmm. as a musician unless we're designing something ourselves. What is that going to mean if we could do that with, within a larger collective of musicians, you know, a, a symphony orchestra or, you know, like an entire musical community? Everyone has so much to contribute. And I think that when we're working with young people, we need to show them that that's how they should be showing up in the world. Yeah. We have worked a lot with incarcerated youth as well. And that is the most, I think, one of the most important things that, that we can just create space for them to do that. They might not have that space. Giving people the opportunity to do that through music or whatever their area is. Um, but music tends to be a really accessible entry point for people. That's really important. Everyone needs to be able to use their own voice in so many different ways. We all felt like we could speak up. I think we'd be living in a really different world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that just brings to mind also, Tiffany, the reach that you guys have now. You're reaching into communities where they may not have had exposure to this kind of programming before, like disadvantaged communities. And like you said, finding out what needs they have by being exposed to those students. So can you talk a little bit more about what you're doing to try and bring more diversity into music? Yeah, it was a really interesting time to write a series. We were starting to write in July of 2020. Wow. Yeah, so it was kind of perfect that it hadn't started earlier. When we started designing this, we decided to go with themes that start with universal language of music and travel all the way to music of revolution because we couldn't have a meeting or a conversation without talking about what is music of protest. And we can't not talk about that right now. We can't not talk about what's happening. And we wanna give teachers and parents and kids a way to talk about Black Lives Matter. Yeah. What they're experiencing in their communities, in their families, what everyone is seeing on the news. So that really ended up shaping the themes that we chose. It was an immediate focus from the beginning, you know, how are we programming underrepresented voices? We want to normalize this for young people. This is not like something that you're just going to learn during a token month. Right. <laughs> this is just embedded in the curriculum. This is a normal part of what you learn when you learn music history. But then, you know, we look back through the history of Sound Impact, and since we've been working in different communities for so long, this was always a part of what we were talking about anyway. 
Costa Rica was our first, you know, major international destination. We're not going to go to Costa Rica and take them all <laughs> classical music by white dudes. <laughs> I mean, we did play a little, you know, we played a Brahms a clarinet quintet because they would have never heard that actually live. But then, you know, we're playing close to Costa Rican composers and other Latin American composers and playing Costa Rican songs that they would know that are a part of their culture. We all need reminders and to hold each other accountable for what we're doing Mm -hmm. and to really make sure that we're uplifting these voices in a really equitable way. And that comes for the people that we're collaborating with too. Just give people a space to share these stories. I think that that's so important. It's a challenge for all of us in deciding how are we gonna continue this work and how much of our efforts are we gonna dedicate But I mean, this year has been really interesting for me. It's like, what am I choosing to do? Holding myself accountable constantly. You know, am I doing the work? Mm -hmm. Am I doing it with my viola? Am I doing it with the people I'm working with, um, with the organizations I'm a part of? And um, I'm very fortunate that I'm working with organizations that really, these are very high values for them. And people are pushing really hard to, to make change. That should have happened a long time ago. I think it really needs to be centered in everything that we're doing and talking about as a field. I'm not really having conversations where this isn't a part of the planning anymore. And that feels really refreshing. And even in my personal life, I married into an Indian family and my husband's from California, but his family's from India. And that brought its own unique challenges in our lives. And so It's just really interesting to see how this all intersects in humanity, right? Yeah. There are reasons why I am where I am, I think, and and why I'm here to sort of push boundaries. Yes. (laughs) And ask uh, difficult questions and to, you know, keep pushing forward. When I put it in the context of this year, pandemic time, I can unfortunately share that I've had experiences and conversations where there's kind of a, I would say there's there's a fear about doing something like that. And I don't know if it's just a fear of change or if it ties into, and this is kind of where I'm headed with this, that sort of like very ingrained mentality that if someone else can get the job, I'm not going to have the job anymore. And that's certainly true when you talk about diversity on a grander scale, national or even worldwide. And I think that's true even without the diversity piece. I think that's true in our own business. I think everybody feels like they're scrambling for all the work they can get. And hence this talk of frenzy we started with where you're going to grab as much as you can. I wonder if that's centered in there somewhere. Well, first of all, I want to applaud you both for starting something. And it's amazing. (laughs) And it's viola community that we needed, but it's so much more than viola. Um, And I think that even though viola said, you know, rule the world. Um, <laughs> if you look around, there are a lot of violists that have very interesting jobs beyond the stage Yes, in the arts, which is a funny like statistic that I, we should actually look into this. There should be studies done. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what is it? You know? Yes. Congratulations. It's scary to start something new. There are s- countless barriers and, but we all needed it. You're empowering other people to share their stories, to do so many things. And like you're showing other people, other generations that they can do what they want to do and they can choose their own path. So this is the hope. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But now going back to fear, which you guys clearly don't have, which is Oh, we have plenty of fear. We have it. We just hide it really well. (laughs) We just push through it. Yes. Yes. That's okay. That is a great point. We are all afraid of things probably every day. And fear is a really powerful mm, tool 
manipulator yes in our field mm-hmm. and that also takes me to scarcity mm-hmm. i think that scarcity is so pervasive in the arts world and so when you talk about losing opportunities because we're trying to be more equitable truly if we're coming from an abundant standpoint there's enough to go around yes but that is really 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 hard and that's not really something that we perpetuate in our field but that is something that's there like there is enough work to go around it may not be the kind of work you think you want to do but if we all really looked at i'm curious if we all looked at what our why was or what we really wanted to do how many people would change their path slightly Mm -hmm. not that they wouldn't be performing but it might just look different Mm -hmm. and i think what you've both created is so beautiful because it just it's another example that you can take what you love and turn it into something unique that can bring more to your life, more opportunities. Like you said, Stephanie, you have so many opportunities because you have flexibility, because you have a beautiful performance career that's outside of, you know, a strict schedule. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like we need to do the work to look at what we need and what we want individually before we expect that we should have what we think we want. Mm -hmm. But I, I can appreciate that a lot of people are having those really difficult conversations and feel threatened. Maybe it's about time that we feel threatened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just totally could not agree more. And I am so motivated to find a way to help people feel like it's okay to look at it from a different perspective. Yeah. It's okay to do that. There's just so much. Yeah. The fear of scarcity is it's deep. Yeah. It's deep in our business. And you know what? It's not even our business. It's our society. Yeah, that's right. It's capitalism. Yep. It's the way our world works. And so it is so deep. But there are a lot of people out there that are not living in that mentality and in that perspective. It is hard when you're surrounded by them. So I find that putting myself into new situations is really helpful and in comfortable situations. Ironically, (laughs) I ended up becoming more comfortable going into incarcerated spaces after a long time than other spaces. Really? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it can be a very scary environment to go into. It's very jarring, slamming doors. You don't know what's going to happen. There's a feeling of unpredictability. However, when you really get in there and you do the work, you realize like this is nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. This is not about me. This is not about how perfectly I play the viola. Like this is not why I'm here. Right. And it transforms your perspective. I love that. And so if we could all have an experience like that, it doesn't have to be that. But if we could all put ourselves into an experience that is so unexpected, that could be one way where we could change our perspectives with our actual instruments. Yeah. It's just so interesting to be embedded in a community where you don't belong. And that, you know, like, just just do that. You know, you will learn everything about yourself real quick. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully you will not run away and shut it all, bury it all down. And, you know, it's going to bring up a lot. <laughs> yeah. And then you work through it. Yes. That's one way, I think, where if, if, if we try as classical musicians to stay in our safe zones then, you know, we're kind of missing the point. Mm -hmm. We need to get uncomfortable. Yeah. Yes. I love, I love it. Yeah. That's, I mean, you can't, 
you can't grow without being uncomfortable. Absolutely. You can't. It's so good to think about. And I, I think one of the things that Stephanie and I would like to be a part of is that just subtle shift in mentality. Mm-hmm. If someone is inspired by the conversation, abundance versus scarcity. So we're very new to this concept as far as neither of us feel particularly authoritative on the subject. But you mentioned something about how it it comes from the inside. This shift is not, it's not something other people can see in you as a human being. It's something that you feel. That's the work that has to happen on a grander scale. It's just the question is how. Yeah, competition is so pervasive too. And I never thought I was a very competitive person. Like I didn't, I never wanted to do competitions. And like violists, I think generally anyway, you know, we're a family. I I really like all of my teachers were the most loving, generous people, but that doesn't always exist. And I think that that's something that we need to talk about too is is what is competition doing? Not that it shouldn't exist because we need a level of competition to continue to raise standards. But if we're looking at what perfectionism means mm-hmm. and how that's a product of capitalism, we need to readjust these kind of structures that we exist in. And then what does that look like when we're more supportive of each other and when we are in an abundant state, we're more willing to share opportunities. And when you give more, you get more. I've done some money workshops and or like read these books and the exercises donate to, for, to organizations for 30 days. And every time I've done that, people have donated the sound impact or like a financial opportunity has come my way. It's really fascinating. It's just like this concept of the more you put out there, the more that the universe gives you. Mm. And I think it's not just for money. That goes for everything, energy and community. That's not easy for everyone. And that is, go back to fear. (laughs) (laughs) That brings up all sorts of fear, even talking about it, right? Yes. But I think that is one of the things that we need to normalize too in the musician world is talking about, money and finances and and what that means because we're always calculating the no versus the yes right oh well if i say yes to this and i don't say no to this are they ever going to call me again yes right we're constantly breeding scarcity fear and competition Mm -hmm. oh my god (laughs) (laughs) what freelancing musician listening to this doesn't think that way you get the opportunity so many times i can think about the yes that I said to a job that I was like, well, I don't have a job that weekend. I know this other group that I play with that I would maybe rather play with because it pays better or whatever hasn't asked me yet. I took this other job. I said yes to that. Then the other group calls and you're like, okay, so what? how do I weigh this decision? And it's literally based in worry that if I make the wrong decision, something bad is going to happen in my career. Yeah. And I, I wonder how much of that actually tracks. What do we build up in our mind as a reality that is not accurate. And then we weigh that so heavily in the decisions that we make, the yeses and the noes. Yeah, what are the stories we're telling ourselves that are complete stories? Really fascinating. I will say that since I, you know, this is interesting to like talk about this and think about this because it's once I really decided where I was going to direct my work and my focus, I don't go down these spirals. Yeah, yeah. 
And so it's interesting. I was thinking about this as you were talking. I'm like, oh yeah, I haven't been doing that to myself. You don't answer the question once and then that's it. You know, you go back to it. You keep going back. Um, it could be every three months. It could be every three years. It's really dependent on what's going on in your life. But once you really take a sharp look at where you want to put your energy, I mean, that helps you be abundant too. You're not worried about what you're missing. FOMO disappears, oh, right? Right, yes. And it makes it easier to give other people opportunities. I think also that people seeing more than one path for themselves as musicians will help to dissipate that a lot too. Yes. And I think that discussion belongs when somebody decides they're going to study music. You don't have to go down the orchestral path. You know, that there are other options in the music world. People are going to be able to see that a lot more easily now because people are actualizing those other paths as we speak. So I'm hopeful that in the future that people won't feel railroaded onto the orchestral path. And then if they don't find success in that path, they don't feel lost. If people can see other possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's what your podcast is going to do. We hope. Because so much of it is just normalizing the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yes. I feel so grateful for this time in discovering that this was something we could do. Because, hey, I don't know if anybody knows this, but I'm a talker. <laughs> no. Stop. <laughs> and Stephanie and I would have these conversations every once in a while that kind of hinted at this stuff that we struggled with as freelancers, where we are in our careers. Because yeah, you know, I mean, there is the there is the yes to everything phase. And then you I picture it as like this little, you know, you're on a hike, but it's like a hike with multiple level plateaus. So you hike and you hike and you say yes, yes, yes. And then you get to a certain plateau where you're getting a certain amount of work and then you start to let go of some of the things you no longer need and then you walk that plateau for a little while and you start climbing up again and then you hit another one yada yada so you get to a certain point and you're like okay I still feel like there's so much I don't know and so much out of my control and like why do I feel this way and why am I on this hike yeah why am I even on this stupid hike, why am I on this hike? <laughs> yeah. never gonna reach my destination what is the point you know there's no waterfall at the top <laughs> someone misled me Right, right. You can get some good views, but like you're not, you know, you're never done. And that's sort of how this started. But we were like, let's just put these thoughts out there and just try to inspire people to, first of all, believe that each one of us has something authentic to say. And then not only inspire, but encourage and maybe ultimately have resources to help people do that. I think we're totally in agreement that that's how we can innovate this industry that we love, you know, I want classical music to go on forever. Mm -hmm. And it, it has to change, you know, we have to keep changing. So yeah, I think the normalizing of the not just multidimensional, but you know, Robin, I went to undergrad with Robin and grad school with Robin. I've known her for a real longer than I'll admit. We love Robin. But I, I was listening to her a podcast with you all. And she's an incredible example. You know, she knew she wanted to 
be with people in two different ways. And that's okay. But I remember when people started talking about her going to nursing school, it was like, hush, hush. I've never even said this to her. And that is such a damaging (laughs) thing to perpetuate in the music world that it's not okay to do something outside of music. Yes. A lot of my friends are like now real estate agents and selling insurance and doing all sorts of different things during the pandemic. And I hope that they feel good about that. Yeah. You don't have to be 100% in the music world to be a great player. Right. Mm. Thank you for saying it so pointedly. You can be a fantastic musician and not gig all the time. Yeah. And I noticed when I altered the amount I was playing. So not concerts every single weekend, you know, more education concerts during the week. And then some weekends I'd be on and I was doing a different pacing that I felt like my playing was changing in a positive direction. And it was like, wow, maybe I'm not supposed to play 40 hours a week. (laughs) Not to say that you don't practice, but yeah, my body may not be built to do every single week after week after week. And, you know, it wasn't okay back then to take a week off. Right. But I think that, you know, we all need to figure that out for ourselves. And I just hope that we can advance that conversation to say, if you are doing things beyond music, that doesn't lessen your musical contributions. Have you guys read Essentialism? No. No. <gasps> okay. That is such an interesting book because it talks about really dialing down to what is actually essential for us as individuals. And then, of course, that translates to organizations. It talks about sleep. It talks about other things. But it really it dives deeper into that. What do you say yes to? What do you say no to? But in this really beautiful, simplified way where you're, I go back to it, like periodically, my husband listened to it. I've like passed it on to so many people because it's really valuable. He's coming out with a book about making everything easy. And I think that that is a really interesting concept for artists too. We always think everything has to be the hardest way to the answer, right? So what if we could transform that? Well, it all goes back to perfectionism, which is something that we talked about, too, is like you hold yourself to the standard where nothing you do is good enough. And so, of course, if you make small improvements, it's not going to be good enough if you build build it up in your mind. So, you know, why start anything? (laughs) (laughs) Why are we even bothering? And if we're not suffering, it totally doesn't count. (laughs) Yeah. It never happened. Do you know that they've they've done studies about people who have these perfectionist tendencies? And, you know, a lot of perfectionists are procrastinators because they don't want to start anything because they know they're going to have trouble fulfilling it to their expectations, their internal expectations. And so people put things off. And then so you start it late, but you still finish it by the deadline. And that gives you an adrenaline boost. And so you are searching for that feeling. So the next time you're like, I'm going to wait because I know I can do it. And because you're going to get that adrenaline boost. So you put yourself in that cycle. My chiropractor actually told me that that's, she, she actually like made me call it out. She's like, so you generate energy. This is how you generate energy. So we pre pandemic, we're working on how could I generate energy from not doing that? Ooh. So it is possible to change. Good. (laughs) I've read articles in the last year or so about that have come out about procrastination and have sort of shifted the conversation from everybody has that thought in their mind that procrastination is laziness. 
It's not laziness. It's almost always anxiety, actually, like in some form. And what you just described, Stephanie, sounds exactly like my brand. (laughs) I was like, yeah, this 100%. It's like, I can't wait to do this thing, but oh my God, I have to do this thing and it has to be right. And then you put it off. One of the the podcasts I listened to last week from Essentialism was a guest. And I honestly, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but he wrote a book, I think called Distractable. And he actually talks about the emotions and the mindset behind why we get distracted and what we're trying to avoid. And so his book, which I have not gotten yet, goes into tools to dealing with that. So maybe that, maybe Liz, we can read that book Uh, and see if it'll cure our procrastination perfectionism. (laughs) Totally. I think once you start to excavate the motivation behind perfectionism, I think that starts to help with that because there are all sorts of ways that that manifests in an individual from a very young age. And it looks different on every individual, just like our creativity looks different on us. So I think, again, I mean, we sound like a broken record here, but it's that inner work. It's, It's just getting to know yourself a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely agree. I'm so interested to see how we as a field deal with that. What it's going to look like in 10 years, what it's going to look like in 20 years, because perfectionism is baked into the way we learn our instruments. Yeah. But I still think we need to challenge what that looks like and and what, you know, we talk about what a success look like when we're working in under-resourced communities looks different. Or what does success look like for students right now that are in school? Keeping them engaged. If they show up, that is success in a lot of school districts right now. Yep. And really readjusting our expectations. And I think that's going to go for people. I mean, that does currently go for people of all ages. But when we go out of the pandemic and we re-enter the world in a much larger scale, hopefully we'll have more grace mm-hmm. for people on what it looks like to show up. Yes. I know this conversation, it's really lit me up. And I know that our listeners are going to feel inspired in the same way to think about things a little differently. So I, I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful for you. Yeah. Oh, I'm so grateful for both of you. I mean, you guys are doing out of the box things and I totally appreciate that. And we need to see more of that and women leading. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Yeah. So Tiffany, where can people find those videos? Time Travel Goes Digital. Where can they find them? You can find them on the Sound Impact YouTube channel. And you can also find them on our website, www.soundimpact.org. So moms out there with littles, you got to check out this video series. It is so, it's so good. It's so good. And actually it's coming, thanks to Nat Phil, it's coming to DC TV. So DC Public TV, anyone who's living in DC proper, starting at the beginning of April. So it'll be on your TV twice a week. (laughs) That is super exciting. So cool. Well, thanks again, Tiffany. It's been a blast. So great to see you and talk with you both. Thank you so much for listening to the Viola-centric podcast. If you enjoy what you're hearing and would like to support us, please consider a contribution through the PayPal or Venmo links in our episode notes. Once again, I'm Liz O'Hara-Star. And I'm Stephanie Knudsen. We release new episodes every other Monday, so please subscribe so you don't miss one. In the meantime, connect with us on Facebook and on Instagram and email us at violacentric at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.